We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Perpetual Chess. I have a guest I am super excited to talk to this week. I've been wanting to interview him for a long time, and now here he is. I'm looking right at him. He is the former world under 12 champion, U.S. junior champion. He became a grandmaster in 2013. He is a Stanford University graduate. He is one of the United States top players. He is an author. He's been an author since he was like 12 or something. He's a beloved chess announcer for chess.com, very popular Twitch streamer. And now he has a YouTube channel that's blowing up just for good measure. Speed and Speed Chess and Bullet Wizard, who holds his own with anyone from Magnus Carlsen on down. So, so much to talk about. So I will stop talking and bringing him, bring him in. Grandmaster Daniel Naroditsky, how are you, sir? I'm good, and thank you so much for having me, Ben. Um, Perpetual Chess has been the only thing that's been playing in my car for the last five months, I think. So I'm a big fan of your show, and uh, it's really an honor to be uh, to be here and to be interviewed by you. That's awesome to hear. That really means a lot to me. And I'm going to call your bluff or put you on the spot, Danya, and ask what, <laughs> which interviewer interviews you uh, you enjoyed. 
uh, of late, uh, the one that I might have enjoyed the most was uh, International Master John Watson. And I am a sucker for chess stories. So anything where I love hearing about him hanging out with Tall, all those old Soviet players at tournaments, that's, you know, I love hearing about that. And um, actually, the very latest one against uh, with, I think, Andrew Zinn. Yeah. I really enjoyed hearing about that, too, because, of course, I'm very passionate about chess teaching. So hearing how an adult improver went from, you know, 1500 to 2100 firsthand, I feel like that's already enriched um, some of the, some of the things that I'm going to do with uh, with my students. Um, so that was very interesting as well. Cool. That's awesome to hear. I mean, I know like listeners, I know you guys love the adult improver interviews. I like them as well, but I'm always impressed when, when title players like yourself listen to them and have that perspective. Cause that shows like some empathy, you know, you're not just thinking it's not just about you and it's not just about the stories, you know, it's about uh, learning more about the craft. Right. Exactly. I, I love hearing about just how honest, hardworking chess players get better. It's, it's always interesting. Gives me a rush. Cool. Um, okay. Well, well, Daniel, we have so much to talk about, but we're recording here on Thursday. Of course, I don't know the date, August 20th. And I have to ask you because the, the um, impact chess just wrapped um, with just super dramatic finale. I usually don't talk a ton of chess current events, but just because it was so momentous, I have to ask if you caught any of today's finale between Hikaru Nakamura and Magnus Carlsen. Well, I did, and um, I had to pull over to watch uh, the first two Blitz games, and then I ran into my apartment and then put it on the TV, and I watched the Armageddon with my hands shaking. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, it, I was, I felt like I was maybe even more nervous than the players. It was, I mean, this is what makes me love chess. I mean, I live for these moments. Um, you could not have scripted it any better. They both put their blood, sweat, and tears on the line. Uh, and it was just an incredible match. I caught most of the games, most of the sets, um, and I even had the pleasure of commentating uh, one of the sets uh, in Russian, actually, uh, with uh, Grandmaster Sergei Shipov's uh, channel. So it was it was a fascinating tournament. Yeah, we'll get back to you commentating in Russia, Russian later in the interview. But yeah, I had a similar experience. I was out with my kids and kind of tracking the results on my phone. And then finally, I had to I had to put on the YouTube on the Bluetooth in my car for the, like the fourth and final match. So I'm driving home with that on the audio, trying not to look, you know, I'm, you know, not going to get in a car accident being safe, but just to hear what's going on and then manage to catch the blitz in the arm again. Um, so much fun. And yeah, they both obviously would have deserved to win. But some, but I did want to ask you the one sort of topical matter from this is on Twitter, a lot of people go back and forth about um, them eventually going to Armageddon for listeners who aren't familiar. Um, Armageddon games are basically where in order to break a tie, black gets one minute less um, and gets draw odds. And some people think this adds even more sort of energy and suspense but other people think they should just basically play blitz until someone passes out. What's uh, what's your opinion, Danya? Um, I like the concept of, of Armageddon. I mean, in terms of the intrigue, uh, it, it adds a tremendous amount of it. And, you know, there have been discussions for a long time about how to not so much eliminate draws, but incorporate draws as a somewhat tie-breaking uh, result as well. And that's essentially what Armageddon does. You know, a, a draw is still possible from a sporting perspective, but essentially it's a win for one of the players. Um, I, of course, also like watching fights to the death, but I'm sensitive to the fact that, you know, both of those players were exhausted by the end. So 
I don't think it's it's kind of a you know a Deus ex machina you know just kind of end the match already. It's it's not like they haven't been playing for a very long time, and I think when they play on equal terms for so long, um, I don't see anything anything wrong with that. And selfishly, I, it's always so interesting for me to watch. You've got the proper uh, showing off your history degree with the Deus Ex Machina use. I used to call it a Deus Ex Machina because I had only read <laughs> read the words. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done. But yeah, I, I generally agree with you. Um, I feel like, okay, maybe you could try to avoid it for a little bit longer, throw in a couple more blitz matches. Like today, after the four rapid games, they played two blitz games, which only when those ended tied do they go to Armageddon. So, okay, maybe you could make them play four, maybe six. But like you say, this is the end of a long meat grinder of a tournament. So at some point, maybe you just end it. Although with online, at least like in, uh, you know, when people argue about tie breaks in, in OTB tournaments, they talk about like you only have the space for a certain amount of time. People have travel plans. With online, at least those don't come into to play. So I think maybe you could torture them with more chess a little bit more. That is very true. I would have loved to see that. And also it, it brings up the point that, you know, you don't necessarily want the results of the entire match sort of condensed into necessarily one moment. Um, there's something to be said for that intrigue wise, but I, I totally see your point and I agree. Maybe maybe something like a compromise four to six games uh, would have been nice. Uh, selfishly, I would have loved to see some bullet, but well, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Um, that's just my inner demon speaking. So mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. I think I think maybe four six blitz games and then an Armageddon would be would be entirely reasonable. Yeah. Well. Since you brought it up, Daniel, I'm going to go ahead and ask you about your bullet <laughs> oh, exploits. No, what did I do? <laughs> no, I did mean, I say that? <laughs> it, it's so much fun. I mean, mm-hmm. watching you and Magnus go head to head and obviously, you know, Penguin GM, whoever it is that you're playing, but it's just so mind boggling to watch. I mean, obviously you've been a top player, you know, for, for what, 12, 13 years, top for your age now, just top in the country. Um, but at what point did you realize like that you were, especially good at the faster games? Well, I've been playing Blitz as, as long as I can remember. Um, of course, I played on the Internet Chess Club uh, since, I think, 2004. That was the first time uh, my dad made me an account. And bullet-wise, I remember that I had an allotment of bullet games that I could play uh, per week. And I vividly remember this. If I had trained diligently for the whole week, then on Sunday, I remember those Sundays, my dad would allow me to play, I think, 10 bullet games. And I lived for those Sundays. Um, and I, I realized pretty early on that because of my sort of ta- very tactical, aggressive proclivities, I was kind of predisposed, I think, to be good at bullet and well, sometimes bad at classical, but I'm sure we'll get <laughs> to that. Uh, and, and I loved playing blitz when we had, um, you know, my coach over it was always blitz until the late hours of the night. Um, I could play blitz all night nonstop again, since the time that I was nine or 10. And, you know, I had a pretty high rating on the internet chess club, even as a national master fee day master, I'd compete with a lot of GMs. Um, and I certainly had a lot of those late night sessions. So it was pretty on pretty early on that I realized I was, I think particularly good at blitz and bullet and also pretty early on that I realized I was addicted uh, to Blitz and Bullet. Um, and then, you know, I, I branched out. I started playing on chess.com. I started experimenting with 30-second chess, which, you know, some may argue is not really chess. And I don't necessarily dispute that. And that's the thing. I I don't necessarily think Blitz should 
be mentioned in the same breath as classical chess, but that doesn't make Blitz or even Bullet inferior to classical chess. It just adds a different dimension to it. Perhaps it could even be called a different variant. Um, and I just think I happen to be good and very much enjoy that variant. Again, I don't think that there should necessarily be a head-to-head comparison between Blitz and classical. But long story short, I and I always lived for over-the-board tournaments. Um, there was always an annual Blitz tournament at the, at the Mechanics Institute Chess Club in San Francisco. And even if I had tons of homework, I would beg my parents to take me there every year. And I would live for that tournament. So it's, you know, my whole life, I feel like my whole chess career has, has always revolved around long blitz sessions. And uh, I've always enjoyed it very much. Yeah. And it shows in the quality of um, your skills. So you mentioned that your parents had rules for your bullet chess. Did they have rules for your blitz as well? Or was that allowed? Well, the rules for Blitz were instituted after one uh, particular episode. This was, I think, I was 1800 at the time. This was maybe around 2005 or so. Don't quote me on that. Uh, And um, as it went, uh, there was a night, and this was recently after I'd gotten my first laptop and an internet connection. And I vividly remember that I played 70 Blitz games in one (laughs) night. because, And I remember the number because uh, after that, my dad went into my uh, rating history on uh, ICC and, and counted it. And the, the, this was a Monday night. Uh, and I remember that because Tuesday night was uh, the chess game at the Mechanics Institute. It was Tuesday night marathon. So every Tuesday uh, there would be a club game. And I was paired against the 1600. And on move 15, I, well, I had a knight on H5 and he had a queen on D1. And well, I did not move that night from H5. And it was captured by my opponent's queen. And of course, I lost three moves later and spun a whole story about how I'd sacrificed it and miscalculated <laughs> an epic line, you know, six moves in. Uh, it was all, of course, a complete lie. But uh, my coach at the time, international master John Donaldson, uh, who was the director of the Mechanics Institute, um, someone to whom I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude. Um, he was one of the people who raised me as a chess player and instilled in me uh, a lot of the chess culture and, and class and love of chess history that I have. He's one of the premier chess historians. But John was not fooled. He knew exactly what was causing this. And it was, of course, my addiction to Blitz. Because at that time, I wasn't well-formed enough as a chess player to you know, to know how to incorporate Blitz. And it was still very much harming my play and my decision-making. And so after that, uh, you know, an allotment was instituted. And I, I think that that actually really, really helped me because... Well, not only did I finally contain my addiction, but also the actual quality of the Blitz games that I did play um, was significantly increased. And uh, even to this day, I always take Blitz. Like to me, Blitz is not usually a time where I just kind of relax and, you know, kick my flip-flops out and just lay down in my recline in my chair. It's, It's always serious. And I always treat it as, a serious endeavor, even though it's a lot of fun. So I think that's how that started. Um, and of course, later on after that, I went back to playing 70 games in a night or hundred or 570. Um, there were plenty of those nights as well, but I think that's how that started. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And you've, you've written on chess.com. You did a great series giving some pointers for, for blitz. Um, could you share a few of those highlights um, just for, for listeners? Like I, I've mentioned a couple of times in recent interviews, I'm, I'm trying, I'm not, I've always been one of these guys who's better at slow chess than fast chess. 
Um, and now that we're all trapped at home and that chess is moving online, it's, I feel like, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm over the hill to begin with, but I'm at least trying to address it. I'm trying to get faster and work specifically on blitz. So what, like, I know you still do some teaching. So what do you see in your students, common mistakes, practical tips that you're able to give to people? Well, of course, I could probably write a book about this, and maybe I will one you, day. You should, yeah. <laughs> that'll be interesting. But I'll, I'll identify a couple of things, and I'll, I'll try to keep it concise. Um, first of all, uh, talking about tactics, obviously, everybody knows that tactics are tactical vision, sharp tactical vision is tremendously important uh, in for blitz success and for chess success as a whole, but especially uh, to be a good blitz and, and bullet player, you got to be able to very quickly spot tactical patterns. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is, you know, some of my students come to me and they say, I'm very bad at tactics. I, you know, I don't see, I blunder all the time. I don't see tactics. And, you know, I don't even know what to compare it to, but in my opinion, you can't really be bad at tactics as a whole. Usually what happens is they're bad at a particular subset of tactics. And when I go into their games and take a deep dive into their actual nature of their blunders, I find usually not always, but in a lot of cases, I find that they tend to commit certain types of tactical errors. So I'll literally find that they often miss pins, but not forks, or they'll often miss moves from side to side. You know, I had one student who would regularly miss diagonal queen moves, you know, moving wow. the queen from one flank to the other flank. So, you know, without getting too micro about this, I think that it usually is possible to be more granular when it comes to diagnosing tactical weaknesses in the same vein. Um, you can be very good at spotting tactical patterns, but bad at calculation, or you could be good at visualization calculation, but bad at spotting tactical patterns. And I think each of those things has a different prescription um, when it comes to improving them. There's a lot of commonalities, of course, and they all involve solving and they all involve regular um, tactical maintenance. But that's one thing that I point out. So I would advise for people who are maybe performing self-diagnoses uh, to try to be as granular as possible, because usually it is possible to go beyond saying I'm bad at tactics or or even I'm bad at positional chess or I'm bad at end games and actually understand, well, are you bad at practical end games or do you not know, you know, the Philidor position and et cetera. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing I'd point out is that oftentimes, you know, players think of players have a certain image of themselves. And a lot of players think of, think of themselves as slow. You know, you hear a lot of players, ah, I, I kind of like blitz, but I'm, I'm too slow for bullet or too slow for blitz. But then um, sometimes I'll almost prescribe to my student uh, bullet games. Well, that sounds like the best kind of, you know, <laughs> medicine possible, but some of them will, will resist and they'll say, I'm never going to be able to, I'm so bad at bullet. But when they force themselves to play intuitively, and there's several exercises that I, I've designed to work on that as well, when they force themselves to play intuitively, and this has to be done, of course, in moderation, or else you'll end up like me blundering the nine on H5 mm -hmm. um, when you play classical chess, they find that their intuition is actually quite good, and they're able to work on it, and they're able to get faster. And um, on that note as well, I think that logistical things are more important than people realize. Sometimes getting a mouse can, you know, can, can allow you to raise your speed exponentially and people, you know, just play with kind of a crappy trackpad um, or, or getting a better internet connection or just not playing when you're exhausted. I think a lot of people, perhaps without noticing, play when they're exhausted. And most people don't have the luxury of not playing when they're tired. I realize that people work very hard and they often play to unwind after work. 
But, you know, I think everybody can at least try to find times when they're feeling relatively perked up, you know, maybe on the weekend and comparing their performance then uh, because they might realize that they're actually capable of playing very good blitz and bullet. Um, So those are a couple of uh, general pieces of advice. Of course, I could go on and on about this. The one more thing I'll say, I also did a series on bullet mastery, and I think it was called the, uh, the Art of Swindling in Chess, but it was largely about flagging and pre-move skills and all that fun stuff um, that, you know, typical Naroditsky school of chess, um, <laughs> very little quality and a lot of flagging. But in all seriousness, there is definitely an art to that. And there's, you know, in time scrambles, there are certain techniques that, uh, that you can use to increase your chance of, of, of winning on time. And of course, the actual chess improvement uh, dimension of that is very limited, and I don't pretend otherwise. But if you do want to become a blitz and bullet game, then the mechanics are very important, and there's no escaping that. And a lot of for a lot of people, blitz and bullet form a very big part of their lives. That's what they do to unwind. So I think it makes sense to invest time and energy into mastering those mechanics. There's nothing wrong or shameful about that. It's just as much a part of success as working on your tactics or improving your openings. Yeah. Well, I have a couple follow-ups. I know you say you'll try to keep it short, but I mean, to me, it's interesting. And for, for listeners who are not that into Blitz, we will talk. We'll talk. Oh, some, I love talking about this. So. Yeah. We'll talk some some slower chess improvement at some point as well. Um, but one thing is you gave a couple useful time management tips within those articles um, on chess.com. It was like a multi-part series. Um, but is there any rule of thumb you could give? And the other thing is just, um, do you have students for whom it's not sort of ingrained to be constantly thinking about the clock when they're playing like five minute in particular, obviously in bullet, you kind of just have to move. Right. So I think in one of the articles I traced, um, I looked at like 50 of Hikaru's recent blitz games and I traced how long he spends on every move. And I tried to find certain patterns and, and commonalities and, perhaps derive some lessons about time management. Now, none of us are able to play like Hikaru as fast as Hikaru, but one thing that I noticed is, is I, I think I called it, you know, the 15 second threshold or the 15 second rule. Uh, there's at most in a three minute game, there's usually at most uh, one moment in the game when Hikaru spent more 15 seconds or more on a move. And, and you might kind of, your eyes might glaze over at that. And you might say, well, why is that important? But when you think about it, that's actually, tremendously fast three minutes is quite a lot of time and you know a lot of players they'll spend 30 seconds on one move and 45 seconds on another easily in a three minute game but one of the keys to success really is relying on your intuition a lot but there usually was that one moment when he would spend 20 25 seconds that usually was the critical moment in the game so i think that players often err on two opposite extremes on the one hand, they might play instantly and they might overdo it. And, and, you know, in a blitz game, they might end up with two and a half minutes at the end of the game. Well, that's no good if they're going to blunder. And at the opposite end, as you mentioned, are players who just forget about their clock. They just zone the clock out of their minds and they almost treat a blitz game like a classical game. And I think this comes back to that psychology of having to rely on your intuition. It's this vicious cycle sometimes where if you don't work on your intuition, it's never going to get better. If you consider yourself an unintuitive player, then you're not going to work on on your intuition and then you're not going to get better. So that cycle goes on and on. So for players who tend to be too slow and, you know, just assume that, that they're slow and they're not able to, to play intuitively and their tactics are not good. 
if they make those assumptions about themselves, um, then they're not going to work on those things. So you just have to be, I think, very fluid uh, when you think of yourself as a chess player. Um, and you have to be willing to, to put on different hats and put on different clothes, so to speak. And that doesn't mean you have to wear those clothes all the time. You can then revert to being a particular type of blitz players. They're faster blitz players and slower blitz players. And, and both can be paths to success. But you have to experiment on different ends of the spectrum to get better, I think, at crucial skills. Okay. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And, you know, your series just uh, in – I read it, and as I said, I think about it sometimes when I'm working on my game. And I've noticed um, I still have – I'm one of those people that would just let my clock go too low too early in the game. And it wasn't unusual for me to think – I'm old, so I used to play five-minute more commonly – where you think 30, 40 seconds, then all of a sudden you're playing a game of one minute in a middle game. And now I've gotten better, but I still have these random positions where I just think for, you know, way too long, 30, 40 seconds. So what were you going to say? Right. I was just going to say one more thing to understand is that a lot of players and some of my students, they'll they'll get winning positions all the time. But I think I I made that point also in one of my articles on Blitz, where you have to have, you know, at least – and one thing you have to determine is – how many seconds you need to make several fundamental checkmates test yourself on queen and king against king and see how much time you can checkmate someone in and see if you can improve that same with rook and king against king that sounds very trivial but that can give you a sort of a measuring marker of how much time you can essentially spend to get to those positions but a lot of players they don't seem to understand that you can't win a slightly better rook end game with five seconds on the clock, unless you're like Ali Reza Faruja, right. uh, who can win it with half a second on his clock. But most players, you know, you need at least 15, 20 seconds, even in a completely winning position. So it won't do anyone good if out of your one minute, you spend 50 seconds and you find the correct path. Wow, that's that's a great insight. I really appreciate it. And hearing you mention Ali Reza, that makes me want to get get back. Excuse me, get back to your own bullet exploits. But Danya, first, let's take a break and uh, hear from our friends at Chessable. Perpetual Chess listeners, this is your weekly reminder. If you haven't already checked out Chessable.com, now is a good time. They've got a brand new course from world champion Magnus Carlsen on his a legendary endgame acumen, a brand new course from Super GM Anish Giri, lifetime repertoires, the French defense. Personally, I don't like playing against the French defense, but I'm not going to hold it against the Super GM that he revealed some of his research and shared this new course. And of course, the distinguishing feature of Chessable.com is her space repetition. It enables you to really remember opening variations or tactical patterns or whatever it is you choose to study from their many free courses and courses available for purchase. Okay, back to the interview. So, Danya, you've been pumping out the YouTube videos. It's super impressive. I was telling you before we started recording, I didn't know about your channel, and now all of a sudden it's like one great video after another. I enjoyed your video about your one-minute swindle of Magnus in which you talked about some of your uh, epic matches with him, and you mentioned Ali Reza, who I believe you've also uh, crossed swords with. So I'm I want to hear more about this. Like I want granular details behind the scenes, but, but why don't we start by, do you remember the first time you got to play Magnus in either online blitz or bullet? I did. I do. And it was, I think my, my junior year of college, I decided to play in one of those lead chess titled arenas. And um, of course I, I really wanted to play Magnus. And I think halfway 
through the tournament, I get paired with, I think he played under the handle Dr. Drunkenstein back then. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't taking the tournament too seriously. I was in the sort of com- computer lab in my dorm, talking with my friends um, and, and kind of playing on the side. And I was playing pretty well. Um, I mean, you got to be playing decently well to get paired with Magnus. And when I got paired with Magnus, I was trying not to be rude. But and of course, my friends knew who Magnus was, but but they weren't chess players. And they knew I was playing a bullet tournament, but they didn't quite understand the significance of playing Magnus because I I'd play Magnus. OK, you guys all need to quiet down now. Um, and of course, they just kept talking to me because it's just a bullet tournament online. And like, it, you know, the significance of Magnus isn't fully registered. And I totally understand. I mean, why would it? But to me, it was just this rush. And um, I actually played very well against him in the first couple of titled arenas. I think I had a plus score. You know, at one point I beat him a couple times in a row. I could feel myself getting under his skin. Um, you know, I was, I was playing under the uh, nickname Rebecca Harris, uh, which is my my account name on Leeches. And I and I sometimes Magnus would stream those titled arenas, and, and then I'd watch. And sometimes it was in Norwegian, but he would be like oh, Rebecca Harris, huh? and then he'd roll his eyes. <laughs> I'd be like, Yeah, Rebecca Harris, go Rebecca Harris. You know, and that would give me a rush. So that sort of naturally dovetailed into and, and transitioned into our long matches, which which really started a couple months ago. And Magnus, well, with COVID, I you know he has a lot of downtime. So, um, you know, I'm decently high rated on Leech. So Magnus would play Penguin, Andrew Tang, uh, Ferruja. And then one day I challenged him and we played, you know, like a 150 game match. And, you know, normally in those matches, I do decently well. He beat me by a very resounding margin. But I, I remember one, one time, this is pretty recently, this was about a month and a half ago. Now, what would happen is I'd log into Leeches, I'd see that Magnus is online. He'd have the little green marker next to him. So I'd send him a challenge. But, you know, sometimes he'd be playing another match or he would be away from his computer, whatever. And then he'd accept it, you know, an hour and a half later. But I'm not just sitting there pinned to my computer. So one day I was actually, I think, making pizza. And, you know, I'm cooking a little bit so far as I know how to cook, which is, you know, I'm, I'm about a 1,200 at, at cooking. <laughs> right. And uh, on that particular day, um, you know, I was actually making steak and I kind of succeeded in it. And from the court, you know, I'm, I'm in the kitchen, I'm looking at my computer and I see that Magnus has just accepted my challenge, but the steak is in the oven. So I lifted the, uh, the skillet off and I grabbed it of course by the metal end and it's, it's blistering hot. And I'd never burned myself quite like that before, but Magnus has just accepted my challenge. So my left hand is in excruciating pain. And I win the first four. I'm I'm moaning in pain, sitting there moaning. And with the other hand, I'm playing Magnus. And I won the first four games of the match. And eventually, like 40 games in, the pain subsided. I, I lost the match, but it was one of my most memorable matches against Magnus. And, you know, to me, it's, it's such an honor um, and a privilege to play Magnus. And it's such a rush. Um, it's, it's quite unlike anything else that I would literally leave everything, including my burning hand, to, <laughs> to go and play him. Uh, and you know, with Ferruja, it's it's um, I'm more accustomed to even playing forever. We play a lot of thirty second matches. You know, Magnus, it's usually one minute. Ferruja is an, an absolute madman. Uh, he is unbelievably fast. And what particularly has impressed me about Ferruja is his ability to win end games with seconds left on his clock. In you know, Russian school of chess style, he will literally play an objectively brilliant end game. 
I, I swear, with two and a half seconds left on his clock, his ability to anticipate pre-moves and, and to pre-move accurately, much like that of Andrew Tang, is um, just unbelievable. It has to be seen to be believed, quite literally. So, you know, each of those players, they have a different signature, and our matches take on different contours. But it's always it's something I look forward to, um, something that, that really makes my day. But those matches with Magnus, they continue to this day, um, and they usually last over 100 games. And I may or may not have moved a couple of lessons and postponed a couple of lessons. <laughs> but, but that rumor has not been confirmed. So right. don't tell any of my students that, was, okay. that yeah, I wasn't yeah. actually not feeling quite well or <laughs> traffic at 10 p.m. Anyways. Yeah, dog ate your homework. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> No, th- those are some great stories. <laughs> Thank you for sharing them. Um, all right, one quick follow-up. Just, I, I'm sure you get asked this on your Twitch stream all the time, but I have to ask because I, I haven't caught it. Are, are this, is the story behind Rebecca Harris, is that uh, divulged or is that secret? The- oh, that's, that's divulged. Um, and I just have to point out that I, I spent all of five seconds creating that account name because I didn't know that it would become you know big. And uh, Rebecca Harris is just a character in a TV show called Limitless. That's a spinoff off of a movie that I liked. Um, and Rebecca Harris may or may not have been played by an actress who in my early high school days, well, I'll trail off there. You can she made an impression on you. Yeah. She made perhaps a small impression on me. Yes, <laughs> yes, indeed. So that's that's all, all, all there is. It's not like a mythical, you know, I didn't slay any dragons to, to create that. Excellent. Okay. Well, I, I've always wondered, so I'm glad to get to the bottom of that. All right, let's bring it back to these matches. So one thing that imp- I mean, all right, lots of things <laughs> impressed me about these matches. And first of all, just to follow up on what you were saying about the different contours of the matches, obviously, now that you're you're grinding the YouTube hard, that sounds like that would be an amazing l- series of videos um, to add to your to do list. Um, <laughs> just talk about their styles and show some of Ali Reza's technique and stuff like that. I would I would love to see that. But um, one thing I'm wondering is, are you deep, like the way you describe it, I try not to talk about poker, but um, you know, a lot of online poker players will look for matches. And then like you say, they're because someone like you can't just play anyone, they're walking around and they don't know when someone's going to show up. And it, it sort of sounds like that. But once you have someone around your caliber to play, are you guys like corresponding off of the server somewhere like on Skype? or, you know, whatever it might be, DMs or whatever? Or is it just like play and you don't know how long it'll be and just keep going and going? Yeah, normally it's the latter. Now, sometimes the we usually have the in-game chat open. And after a blunder or a particularly nice move, there will be, you know, like a smiley face exchanged or someone will say nice um, or, well, some someone will say something not so nice. Perhaps <laughs> flagging, flagging has occurred. But, but there's a mutual understanding, and there might be a Facebook conversation open at the same time. But, but there's always a mutual understanding that it's the heat of the moment, and you know some things could be said, um, and, and some things could be done in the heat of the moment. That doesn't indicate any sort of disrespect. To the contrary, I've always felt that wanting to win is actually you know, a, a sign of respect, a sign of the deepest respect toward your opponent, because that means you value your opponent um, – to the extent that you would do basically anything to, to beat him. That means it's meaningful to beat him. Um, and so that's sometimes, you know, I, I maybe feel a little bit differently about flagging um, than some players. Now I realize it can get quite egregious um, in certain situations. But again, I feel like it comes back to the fact that you really want to win. And it means a lot to you to beat an opponent of that caliber, which means that you really do respect him. But to, to answer your question, uh, it, there's usually very little 
Um, and, and the etiquette is usually that, um, you know, when you enter the last five games or you know that you'll have to leave soon, you'll just tell your opponent, you know, last four or last six. And that itself can, if a match is not going well for someone and, you know, the, the person who's winning rights last two or something, of course, the, the other player is never happy. And it's always, there's always, you know, a veiled accusation. Oh, okay. Last two, I see. You have some imaginary dinner to attend, of course. So right. where was this dinner when you were losing the match? So then you didn't have to go at, at 7.30 p.m. Well, now you all of a sudden do. I see how it is. So there's there's some of that, you know, some tension, but but that's part of what makes it fun. And what else would one expect in, in such a tense match? Uh, but, but you know, we're always friends at the end. And, uh, again, there's there's a fundamental mutual respect. And we both have, in ter- you know, in the case of Ferrugia, um, we have tremendous fun playing each other, so that never changes. Cool, good stuff. And and at this stage, Danya, I mean, in such a sort of small circle of elite bullet players, do you still try to get better? Is there something you're trying to do to to sort of step it up even more? And if so, what what would that be? Well, par- paradoxically enough, I think that what I need to do to get better at bullet and blitz is actually get better at classical chess, which is definitely a long term project of mine. I do want to hit. 2700 at some point and perhaps take eventually a sabbatical from from teaching and streaming and and really try to grind i need to i need to improve my openings um without a doubt and at that level of at my level of bullet you know believe it or not openings do become important i mean a lot of players play their real stuff even in a 30 second game which sounds totally absurd but it actually makes a big impact because if you get familiar positions then your intuition you know exponentially improves versus constantly trying to play hacky openings and oftentimes you can just get swept off the board very, very quickly um, in a, in a bullet or blitz game. So, you know, at my level, I feel like I know most of the thing. I, I, I still can get better at, at pre-move anticipation and, and getting a little bit better at my mouse, but those are all marginal improvements. I think that the serious improvement lies in actually working on my classical chess understanding. And um, as much as I, as I like to shirk that duty, I think that true, you know, serious improvement lies precisely in that area for me. Huh. That is that is paradoxical. That's interesting. So I'm glad to hear it too, because I mean, it seems like you've got a lot of opportunities professionally right now. Um, you know, you're blowing up across platforms. So, and um, classical chess is not necessarily like, it's more about the uh, personal journey. I mean, of course you have fans rooting for you and stuff, but it's it's a lot of work, especially right now. So is that something you're even able to do at this moment, or is it tough during uh, COVID when there's no no tournaments to play in? Yeah, it's definitely tough to find time for, for training. And right now I've, I've decided to, to dedicate myself for the next couple of months uh, to you know streaming and YouTube and coaching, which I enjoy greatly. Um, and I feel like I'm spending time in the chess world and following a lot of the top games. So it's not, I'm not getting worse. Um, and if anything, I think I have gotten better, um, you know, over the past year. But once tournaments resume and, you know, things somewhat go back to normal, I don't know exactly when and for how long the sabbatical will last. Of course, it'll be painful. And I can already say it'll be painful to downsize teaching and streaming. Um, but that's that's what I'll have to do if I want to be very serious about, you know, breaking 2650 or even 2700. Um, sacrifices have to be made. And, and like you said, you know, it, it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet right now. There, there's just so much I can do. And at times I tend to pile my plate up way too high and I'm still learning where the balance lies there. 
So occasionally, you know, on like a Friday night, I will sit down and, and work on some opening files or work on some tactics. I try to work on tactics regularly, uh, you know, off stream, I'll do some very serious calculation, but this definitely happens um, more infrequently than I would like. And uh, as I learn to be more disciplined with my schedule and, you know, it's, it's very challenging to, and I'm very open about this. I, I, you know, and I hope I'm not the only one, but I definitely struggle right now to, to make a proper schedule and to, to fit all of my lessons in and all of my streams. And at times it cuts, it cuts into my sleep and it cuts into the time I want to train. But I also try to cut myself some slack. It's only been, you know, a couple of months since I moved to Charlotte and started doing this full time. So hopefully by, by a year or so I'll get better at it and then I'll be able to carve out more time and more energy for, for actual training. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it's a challenge. I mean, it's a good problem to have for the most part. But <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, but so do you think with someone as strong at, at Blitz and Bullet, does that suggest to you that you have like latent untapped talent? Um, or do you feel like you're just in the same boat as, I, I don't know what your free day is, but w whatever 26, like 20, any other, yeah. yeah, any other 2600? Well, I tend, you know, general because of my temperament, I don't give myself too much credit. I, you know, I tend to, to have a, if anything, sobering view of myself. But a lot of players have very kindly and encouragingly, and, and people who I know will be honest with me, a lot of them over 2,700 have told me that I have untapped potential and talent. And, and I do believe that on, on some level, especially because I feel like my, my tactics and calculation have always been sort of the hallmark of my talent. Um, and, you know, I think that my level of calculation is probably over 2,700. I think I have very obvious gaps in my understanding um, and playing. Some of this is opening related, but I could delve into that. I, again, I don't keep this a secret um, because, you know, it's not like I think I give any anybody an advantage if I say this, because hopefully I will improve uh, on these areas at some point. So I think that if I'm able to, to gather together the discipline uh, to work on those areas, um, I think it's almost a good problem to have rather than being, you know, 26-20 at every area. I feel like I'm you know, clearly 2,700 plus in some areas and perhaps, you know, 2,580 in others. So I want to write, raise those up. And I think I, I know how to do that. It's it's just about finding the discipline and the time and, and apportioning everything properly. Any thoughts of hiring someone to help you with that? Absolutely. I actually, you know, I have been on the lookout for a coach um, and, you know, I've put that off and actually before COVID started, I was about, you know, I had my eyes on, on a couple of people um, and I, and I was in contact with them, but when COVID started, of course, everything changed and the, the fabric of chess changed. And so I thrust myself fully into streaming and, and coaching. So I've put that off in the, for the time being, but when I once again become serious about improvement, I definitely want to hire someone. And it's not only because, you know, a lot of people think, well, isn't that absurd? You're a GM what is there you don't know about improvement? Well, it's not necessarily about that. First of all, there's plenty I don't know about chess and plenty that a lot of people, many of them older and wiser than me, have to teach me about chess and working on chess. But also just having that motivational force, someone who's there as a guide, someone who you don't want to disappoint, to me, that's perhaps the most important thing. Someone who's there to watch over you and you know, even for me to, even as a GM, um, I had a coach, Grandmaster Lef Sahis, with whom I trained for many years. And even as a GM, um, I couldn't in, in full conscience come to him and say, I didn't do these problems he'd assigned to me. It's, it doesn't matter what my title is. 
I feel like I've let him down if I haven't done my due diligence. And so that I think is worth its weight in gold. Huh? Okay, good, good. Well, I mean, like I said, I'm just glad that it's still on your radar because I, it's, um, yeah, it's daunting for anyone to try to try to improve a classical chess. So what's your, so, I mean, another never ending debate in the chess world is sort of the role of classical chess. So I, I'm somewhat heartened to hear that even someone as, as great at the fast games as you are still feels like that it has a place and you're not totally bored by the idea of playing these like uh, six hour games. Yeah, absolutely not. And and I'd be lying if I said classical chess is, you know, isn't stressful and at times doesn't appear thankless. Um, especially everybody has, has had the experience of, you know, playing a five-hour game, playing brilliant game, and then making a mistake on move 60 and, and losing everything in one second. And classical chess is particularly vicious in that regard and can be vicious in that regard. And the rating system is very unforgiving if you play in a lot of American tournaments as I have. Uh, but with all that being said, um, I, I still feel like classical chess is the purest form of improvement. It's the ultimate search for sci almost scientific truth. And, and with scientific truth comes a certain beauty that I think comes from coming closer to that truth. You know, in Blitz, you can have flashy combinations and amazing displays of intuition. But insofar as actual cold heart improvement goes, I think the classical chess is, is the path. And, uh, and I certainly don't intend to, to throw that to the wind. Cool. Well, we'll look forward to it whenever it happens. It would be fun. This is not totally classical chess, but it would be fun to see you in a World Cup. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to participate in a World Cup. And, um, you know, the, one of the problems uh, living in the U.S. is, you know, if it's in Hansi Mansisk, that, <laughs> that journey is, well, let's just say, not necessarily uh, amenable to, to good chess being played the day after that. And I've had plenty of stories of falling asleep at the board um, in, in European tournaments. But at least now that I'm on the East Coast, it's perhaps a slightly easier travel to Europe, assuming we'll ever we'll be able to travel to Europe in the next decade, but you know, who knows how that, <laughs> that will happen. Yeah. Let, let's hope so. Um, so, so Daniel, we're kind of jumping around, but I mean, again, I just, you speaking of your full plate, I have a full outline. Um, <laughs> so out of, out of all your current projects, I mean, you've also, we haven't even mentioned pog champs, which you've been uh, doing some announcing and some coaching for. Um, is there one thing that you're like the most excited for right now? Well, probably I'll, I'll, I'll identify two things, as usual, not fully answering your question. But I'm probably my purest love and passion is definitely teaching. Um, I love teaching. I love working with the students that I have. I'm very lucky to have the students that I have. And I work with both adults and kids at various levels um, and, and various, you know, talents and, and time constraints and I just love getting into the minds of various chess players. I believe that each chess player has very unique path to improve. And I can talk more about this later, but to me, I don't pretend to have a one size fits all system. You know, that I think some coaches say that they have that, which they apply to each student and promise improvement. I absolutely don't have that. Each student is, has their unique view of the game. And I myself learn a lot from, and it might sound absurd, but really it, it isn't, you know, even a 1700 adult could have certain insights into certain positions, ways that he thinks that I, I, I think about that. And I say, well, that's really nifty. You know, let's flesh that, flesh that, flesh that out a little bit further. Let's extract the good parts of that and let's fix the mistakes. I, I love doing that. It's almost like putting on your investigator hat and 
delving into their games and trying to figure out what their weaknesses are. And that's partly why I love history as well. Again, in the topic of jumping around because you investigate the motivations of, you know, what drove person X to do action Y. It's almost like investigative work. I love research. And chess coaching is quite, quite like research in many ways. So that really is perhaps my purest passion. But, you know, right now what I'm enjoying greatly as well is, of course, streaming um, because it combines my two greatest, really greatest loves, which is talking, um, especially for long periods of time about very little, and uh, playing Blitz and Bullet. And I get to do both at the same time. And I'm, again, extremely privileged to have an amazing community uh, that cheers me on and supports me win or lose, success or failure. And I don't take that for granted at all. Um, And, you know, Twitch is a very, uh, it's an interesting place. It can have its upsides and its downsides, its highlights and its lowlights, you know, its amazing supporters and vicious trolls. Mm -hmm. But I think that I try to stick to what, you know, what I promised to do, which is blitz and bullet and level-headed good chess. And I, I share my passion with my community. And in turn, they enrich my love for blitz and bullet and for analyzing games. So right now I do stream a lot. I try to find time, whether it's at 3 a.m. or 7 a.m. sometimes. Um, when I can't go to sleep, I'll hop on the stream. And uh, even when I'm really tired, it, it, I don't remember the last time I streamed and, and regretted it. Uh, so this it's been going uh, tremendously well recently, and uh, it's been very, very fun. That's cool. And are you trying to do a certain, so you mentioned just hopping on whenever, but do you also try to do certain times? I've had other streamers I've interviewed uh, tell me that you you need to stick to a schedule for the sake of your, your viewers. I think that I do. Uh, one does need to stick to a schedule for the sake of the viewers, but the mistake there you're saying is for the sake of the viewers. <laughs> I, unfortunately, I, I've tried many times to make a streaming schedule and Usually out of the seven, you know, if I stream six days a week, I might make one day within three hours of when I said I'd stream. But I quickly realized that that's just not me. Now, I usually stream at around the same time. I stream late evening or night. That's kind of my slot, um, you know, 9 p.m., 10 p.m. Eastern. And I think most people just kind of know that that's when I stream. Um, obviously, I will announce special streams well in advance. You know, if I do like a 24-hour stream, or if I do a particular commentary stream, I'll, I'll I'll announce that. But by and large, because I feel like unlike some other streamers who are full-time streamers, streaming to me is still uh, what I do for fun. I don't rely on that. For I'm not a professional streamer. Um, I stream a lot, but my job, insofar as one can call it a job, is a chess coach. Um, and because my teaching schedule is always in flux because it depends on personal relationships. And I move lessons around all the time. My students move lessons around all the time. It's very hard to adhere to a specific streaming time. Um, So that's just a compromise I've made. And I think people have been extremely understanding toward that. That's cool. I mean, it's, it's refreshing to hear you prioritize the actual coaching so much because I, you know, in the business world, obviously people are always talking about things that scale. Um, And uh, you know, Teaching chess can be very rewarding, um, but when you're teaching someone one-on-one, you, you know, there's there's only so much money you can make. So from a business perspective, it's not always the best thing, but I'm glad that that's not the only thing that drives you. 
Yeah, that's that's very true. And I've had that discussion with, you know, with family and a lot of my friends and, uh, you know, absolutely valid point. And I thought about this and that's partly why I've, you know, done YouTube and all of that stuff. I'm sensitive to the fact that it's not very scalable. Um, but but like you said, I, you know, as I get older, I, I realize what my priorities are. And I want to make, let me be very clear about this. Of course, I want to make good money and live well. Um, and that gives me gives me joy. And I'm very lucky to be able to, to do that um, and do what I love. And I, again, I, I don't take that for granted, you know, a single day that I do it. But um, I wouldn't be who I am if I were teaching to me is like the air that I breathe. I, I feel like I have to do it. And streaming, part of the reason I enjoy streaming so much is because I think my stream has taken on sort of a pedagogical bent. Even when I play Blitz and Bullet, now, yes, sometimes I'm, you know, smashing my mouse after losing a bullet <laughs> game. I, I'm not going to deny that. But at, at other times, I'm trying to really get to the bottom of why I do things. And that self-questioning also leads me to become a better chess player and, you know, sometimes even a better person. And I do a lot of game analysis on stream. And if I didn't hone that craft constantly through teaching, I feel like it would wither away just like any muscle or skill that you don't practice or exercise. Makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, and in a similar vein, I'm, I'm impressed uh, you know, I, you know, John Bartholomew has been on the show a couple of times, obviously he's had a lot of success in his various chess endeavors, including chessable, but I know he still does a decent amount of lessons. Um, and that, that's something that, that always impresses me about him and you can see the passion and you can see that it makes him a better presenter across the board. So it, it definitely, there are people who have like high level success in the chess world who still, still make time for their students. Right. No, I mean, and I think that if I, if I went full-time streaming and YouTube, um, I, I, you know, things could explode and, you know, maybe I'd end up making more money, but, but like I said, um, I feel like I would be, uh, my, the quality of what I do depends on me teaching consistently and it's, it, it's what grounds me. And I also think that if I relied on, on streaming for all of my income, um, it would, you know, it would make me more stressed out. And I think in streaming, it's very important to have a relationship with your community where you are express tremendous appreciation for everything that you get. But at the same time, you don't feel you don't make your community feel like, you know, an individual viewer is obligated or in some way beholden to you or, or must subscribe to your channel or donate um, because that's that's ridiculous uh, because that person didn't ask you to stream. He might be very appreciative of the fact that you stream, but you know, he didn't ask you to stream and, and by no means does he owe you anything, even if you put in a lot of work. So it's a very, um, very fragile uh, dynamic and one that's very important to maintain. And the fact that I teach allows, I think, me to maintain it uh, better than if, you know, I personally, and a lot of people who are full-time streamers are able to maintain it. But I think for me personally, knowing myself, it's important that I also teach and that's sort of um, the, the groundwork that, that, puts everything else together. Gotcha. And you did mention downsides of streaming and trolls. Is that the, like, is there, what's the most negative thing about streaming? I'm just curious because so many people want to get into it. Um, and so many people are trying it right now. There's a couple of things. Um, and it's not a secret that recently there's been a lot of, you know, with the explosion of chess has come a lot of drama and a lot of sort of mini incidents. And this person said that about that, person and that's one of the things is twitch chess is a pretty narrow community so everything that anyone said is is amplified by trolls you know 
everybody types and and their font size is the same, but what the trolls say can sometimes feel like it's dominates over the entire chat. Are you, what are your thoughts on on this person saying this and they're trying to bait you? So that can be one of those things where you just unwittingly get caught up and you have to be very careful about distinguishing genuine questions from those. So that's one thing. Um, and the other is that, you know, a lot of chess players, they, they, they've hopped on the streaming train and it's just very hard to make it. I mean, oftentimes you have five viewers for the first, you know, three months that you stream and you feel like you're not being appreciated um, and you feel like you have to play sort of the politics to get the raids and to get the recognition. And unfortunately, I have no way to sugarcoat it. That just is true. There's a lot of grandmasters who are tremendous blitz players and deserving of uh, a big following, but they don't get it because Twitch chess right now is so saturated yeah. uh, that that's simply the way that it is. So I will caution anybody who's thinking about going to streaming not to think of themselves and, and see that 1000 next to the viewership count and to do it, you know, because they'd be playing that blitz anyway. And, you know, to, to really moderate their expectations when it comes to the success. Yeah, definitely. Very good advice. And echoed by, by Levy Roseman when, when he was on the show, he said something very similar. Um, yeah. I, as I've mentioned several times, I mean, I, I don't watch a ton of Twitch streams, but yeah, more than ever, when I turn it on, it's just like, there's four people I want to be watching all at the same time. You exactly. Know? Yeah. yeah. yeah you know, sometimes I do watch two people at the same time, but you can, at the end of the day, you can really only, you got to choose who you follow and, and who you watch. That's just the reality of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's bring it back to improvement. Um, I know that's one of your passions and we have a, a question from a supporter of the show. Um, from Patreon supporter Todd Bryant, a.k.a. Strong Chess. So uh, Todd asks, he said, hey, Daniel, I've read that as a kid, you filled up notebooks with handwritten analysis. What kind of things did you put in these notebooks? As an adult, do you feel this was an effective technique? And do you still take handwritten notes today? Definitely. So um, actually, handwritten notes is how my first book, uh, Mastering Positional Chess, came about. So what I would do, and, and I've always loved writing, I feel like writing to me, writing stuff down helps me not only memorize stuff, but internalize it and, and kind of extract the marrow from it, if that makes sense. Um, and I think each person has, you know, it's not necessarily writing that does that, that fulfills that purpose for everybody, but I think everybody has that particular technique that they can implement, which helps them learn the best. For me, it was always writing. Um, and the things that I'd write in those notebooks, usually it was, it was analysis of games. So for example, um, I would have a lesson with my coach and we'd look at four or five games, complete games. And then what I do is I, you know, temporarily erase the notes, um, from the file that would be created as a consequence of the lesson. I would take notes during the lesson and then I basically recreate the analysis in a notebook, of course, with my own angle. And I would try to go deeper than that analysis and, you know, find mistakes in it and, and ask questions about it. Um, and what would ensue is, you know, a fully annotated game or a fully annotated position. The other thing I do is I'd include examples from books um, that I per found particularly inspiring. And if I would never use the actual book and copy um, annotations from that book, I would, you know, set up the position independently, try to analyze it entirely on my own, then, of course, I'd compare it to the book. I'd find that most of the stuff I said was flat out wrong or, you know, you know, the most profound thing that I thought I said was the most obvious point made in the book annotation. So I'd see how much there was still left to learn. 
but eventually I got better at it. And um, I, I tackled a lot of different concepts. So for example, when I was rated about 2000, my biggest weakness was definitely positional understanding. So I took, you know, 100, 200 pages of notes on positional understanding and the stuff we did with my coach. And that sort of sprouted then into, into a book. The book that you wrote, the, the non, because you wrote two books, right? Right. Mastering Positional Chess is the one that, that sprouted from the handwritten notes and the Mastering Complex Endgames was a similar process, but I did start out writing it thinking that it would then become a book. With Mastering Positional Chess, I didn't in my wildest dreams assume that those handwritten notes would be, and, and there's a photo, sort of an image of them in the preface to Mastering Positional Chess. I always wanted to write a book and publish a book, even as a kid. Um, I was I kept I wrote short stories and I filled up notebooks with you know these random stories and I still very much enjoy writing short stories to this day. Um, so it's not only chess writing that I enjoy, but you know I didn't think that that would be transformed into a book. And and how old were you when you published your first book? Um, I think I was it was 2008. I was 12 and a half or so. That is insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, no, no, no. It was um, I was. 13 and a half, I think it was, no, it was more than 12. I think I finished it when I was 12 and a half and it actually got published when I was, I think 13 and a half or just turned 14, something to that effect. I, you know, I don't want to pretend like I'm embellishing anything. I, I truly don't remember the exact age, but it was in that ballpark. Wow. I remember my mom picked me up from school. I was, I, I was in eighth grade. I think I remember that. Um, I should know how old I was when I was in eighth grade, but it's all jumbled in my head now. Um, and you know, she handed me a copy of, of matching positional chess. And I, I remember the euphoria. It was just, wow. You know, just seeing it in print. And of course it would not have been possible without new and chess, which, um, decided to, to take this project on, despite the fact that there was so much editing to be done and, uh, you know, they were tremendously kind and, and still are to me to this day. So, you know, the, the book was, has one author on its front page, but, it, it, it could not have been published and written without an entire constellation of people that were cheering on every step of the way. That's cool. So it sounds like you had kind of a natural work ethic, but in, when I was researching your bio, correct me if I'm wrong, but your, your dad is a mathematician and your mom is a pian a pianist. Yes, that's and, correct. And you're Russian. So it's like you were bred correct. in a lab to play chess. It's exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The Russian, the fact that I, you know, that I speak Russian, I grew up speaking Russian. I still speak Russian to my family is very important, not only because of the stereotype, you know, I'm Russian's play chess very good, but, but also because I have access to a lot of literature that's been written in the Soviet Union, which hasn't been translated. And I basically grew up on that liter literature. Um, and for, as an example, there's something called the Black Series, and it's and it takes its name from the fact that the, the books were bound in you know this black hardcover, this this cover, and and it was a series on uh, top chess players, but they weren't you know necessarily world champions. There were a bunch of Soviet masters that most people have never heard of, like Avars Gipsliss or Vasily Panov. Most some people have heard of the Panov attack. But the player himself was also very impressive. He never became a grandmaster. And they, it would usually be written by the players themselves, and they would annotate their games. And there was a certain charm and a certain depth to those annotations. You know, like it's one of those things that it's not that good resources don't exist anymore. It's, it, in fact, they exist in far greater number and variety. But it's hard for me to explain, but I think people can understand what I'm saying. In the old days, especially in the Soviet Union, there was just that love for chess and that that juice 
of these game annotations that really taught me a lot about positional chess, especially in, you know, calculation, all those skills that I think I, I apply in my games now. Huh. Other formative books for you, whether Russian or English? Um, yeah, this is, it's funny because I, uh, I have a funny story about, about this. I, I can try to share it quickly as I think about what books is just a guise for me to think about the book. So, um, and I'll try to be quick. So Gary Kasparov, uh, many years ago, he hosted these master classes for, you know, talented youth. I think it's 2005 or six. And uh, I participated in one of them. And the first time I was very overwhelmed by Kasparov, you know, just walked into the room and everybody gasps. And as luck would have it, as everyone was exiting the building where the master class was held, Kasparov and my mom and I were in the same elevator together. It was just the three of us. Of course, awkward. And then the elevator hits the ground floor. Kasparov starts talking and asks me about, you know, my rating and stuff like that. And eventually uh, we're standing outside and he asked me, okay, so, so whose games do you look at for training? And I drew a complete blank. You know, like <laughs> when somebody asked me, asks you what your favorite movie is and you can't remember the title of a single movie. And I was staring and I said, uh, Karpov's games. And I, I'm telling this to Kasparov. And my mom was horrified. <laughs> uh, but Kasparov took it very well and he, he complimented Karpov. So in terms of books that had a formative effect on me, um, I have to, I should probably identify, first of all, a book called Learn from the Legends uh, by Romanian Grandmaster Mihail Marin, which is a, it's a recent, I think it was published in 2007, and it's a tremendous analysis of essentially every world champion and, and their greatest strength. And I think Bobby Fischer was associated with his use of the two bishops. And it's, it's very sort of non-cliche. It's things that you might not necessarily think about. Tremendous impact on my chest. It really you know, helped me understand all of these individual dimensions. Um, of course, I read my, my 60 memorable games by Fisher. Uh, Love that as well. And um, yeah, I'd have, to, I'd have to think about more, you know, sort of formative books. Zurich 1953 by Bronstein is another thing that comes to mind. My first ever book, I remember that was uh, Capablanca's Chess Primer. And I recently cracked, you know, John Donaldson, uh, who I mentioned before, was kind enough to gift me a first edition copy of Capablanca's Chess Primer, and I cracked it open recently, and I was engrossed. Um, it, it's actually fascinating, even for me as a as a GM, the crystal clear way he, that he writes. And Lasker's Chess Manual is the same way. I I know this might sound weird, but I highly recommend it to players because, first of all, Capablanca was no fool. This this right. idea that. Yeah, I mean, he was really, really good and good at calculation. So I can highly recommend that to players of, of any level. So that's just a small overview. There are many more books and, and many more great players. Yeah, there are so many. And one thing that I feel like is one of the defining questions here on Perpetual Chess, though, is like how to pick what to study. So with your students, I mean, there's these great books. We talk about them all the time. There's so many classics. But then there's also calculation work and especially players at the club level um, my, myself included, just feel like our calculation could always be better. You know, it's always going to be an issue. So what do you tell your students in terms of how to uh, budget their precious study time? Right. Um, so, of course, that's that's what I consider to be the main brunt of my job. Of course, the lessons themselves are important, but I feel like I haven't done my job if I don't help them formulate their training routine. And with most of my students, I also actually um, – develop material um, and develop problems that are very much tailored to their weaknesses and send them to 
So sometimes I feel like there just are not necessarily books or prob- preset problems that target you know, their exact weakness. And this comes back to what I said about weaknesses usually being a lot more fine-grained than people think they are. Uh, but I would say that one, one important thing is to realize that solving tactics online, as valuable as it is, usually doesn't, doesn't you know, it's not a deep clean of your calculation trade. It's, it's good as a warm-up. But a lot of people, they rely on that exclusively, and I feel like they, they, and then they, they don't see their calculation improve. Obviously, there's the famous problem with tactics where, where it's like somebody's tapping you on the shoulder and saying, well, Ben, you, know, you have to find a three-move tactic in this position because you're solving on chess.com, you know, chess. which is a great tactic strainer, but that's just an inextricable from solving tactics. So there are several ways around that. Of course, there's plenty of books that have yeah, uh, one thing I can recommend is the Encyclopedia of Chess Combinations, um, and they have what I call dirty tactics. Now, it's not dirty in the sense of a Naroditsky flagging someone dirty, <laughs> but it's it's more dirty in the sense that you know sometimes the end result of a tactic is not a checkmate, but it's plus over minus. You know, it's an extra pawn, and there's a lot of books that actually tackle that, and and sometimes you have to dig deep, and that's something that I help my students with is finding those books. Um, another thing I can recommend is a, a little-known book called The Best Move by two uh, Czech grandmasters, which has precisely those kinds of problems, which cross the bridge between positional understanding and calculation. Amazing stuff. So there's there are books that help with that. But the main thing I'd say is it's usually not enough to just you know solve tactics online, even if you do a lot of that. Um, and with books, you want to be very, very uh, both economical and you know, stingy about how much you read and what you read. Sometimes you only want to read, you know, one chapter out of one book and another chapter out of another book. As much as I like reading books from cover to cover, sometimes that's what you need to do. And sometimes I help students, you know, craft that particular routine oh, yeah. as well. Good good advice. And then you got to get the game analysis in there mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, it's absolutely it's tough. Um yeah, and obviously we could we could talk about that for hours, but Daniel, you've been generous with your time. I just want to hit a couple more topics and one really? more Patreon question if you're up for it. Um, Definitely. Awesome. So let's get to the question from supporter of the podcast, John Rockefeller. So um, those who support the podcast find out when we have big shot guests like Danya um, in advance and are able to send in questions. So John asked, he said, you recently live streamed analysis for several of U.S. Chess's Invitational National Chess Championships which were run online this year for the first time. Was there anything that surprised you about that experience? Any improvements you recommend? What advice would you give to commentators analyzing games between scholastic players? Well, I definitely have, have a lot to, to learn, still learn when it comes to commentary. I love doing commentary and, and uh, doing the, uh, the Barber and the, and the, the Rockefeller was um, a great experience. One thing that I'd say is, um, you know, you want to be very dynamic when it comes to looking at games. If you're looking, if you're commentating a tournament that has a lot of games, such as a scholastic tournament with like 15, 20 boards, normally now you want to concentrate on the top boards. But what I see some commentators doing is, and I, this is, you know, I'll be honest, a pet peeve of mine, even in top tournaments, the fixation on one particular game and they'll, you know, they'll lose track of time um, and analyze, you know, one position for 30, 45 minutes and then meanwhile, you know, epic actions have happened on the other boards. And I feel like I've missed some of the fun. So you have to be constantly scouring uh, the, the, the games to see if anything interesting is happening. 
and you want to be you know very dynamic when it comes to to switching around now that's hard to do without making sure that the viewers don't lose themselves and which game is this which game is that so one thing that i found effective is to constantly remind viewers okay this is the game between this person and this person and they're they're playing the rockefeller board too and even though that may sound very repetitive i feel like it grounds viewers and it's almost like they're watching a movie and there's protagonists you know and they're you know, there, there's people they start rooting for and, and you want to animate these players. You know, you want to, just like in basketball, you talk about, you know, players and you, and you give statistics and, you know, this person is 45% from the three point line and this person set this record. That's interesting. And, and I feel like the same should be done with, with players and especially scholastic players, you know, find some interesting stats about them. Where are they from? You know, how did they learn chess? Who was their first chess coach? What interesting fact do they have about themselves? These players would love to, to give that information, maybe to fill out a quick survey, especially if they're playing online. You know, people love to talk about themselves. And I feel like that would really help viewers. It, you know, it would animate these people in their minds. It would just be more than na- a name and a rating. So that's another sort of maybe more specific request or piece of advice that I'd give to perhaps the organizers of tournaments going forward, uh, in, you know, in the COVID age, especially. Yeah, that sounds harder than when you're just doing like the I'm not a GM tournament or mm-hmm. um, a, a single event, event where there's just one game right. or a series of games to track. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when there's one game, it's it has its own challenges. But by and large, I love doing I am not a GM, but it's it's definitely a lot easier. Yeah, you and Robert Hess were great doing that. Thank you. As a, and the chess was compelling, too, of course. Um Okay, so Danya, um, we got to get some impressions. I almost forgot until I heard you bust out the Russian accent. So um, I'm so glad that you did that. Uh, your Yasser, that little video you made of, of Yasser outtakes absolutely killed me. So uh, I've, I've now asked Levy, Roseman, and Amon Hamilton for their impersonation secrets. So I got to uh, complete the triumvirate and ask you as well. Well, Ben, I have to tell you one, one thing that... This entire interview reminds me of an interview that I did at, at Tilburg with, um, what was his name? Walter Cronkite. <laughs> yes, now Walter Cronkite was at Tilburg and he was interviewing F.M. Geller. And, uh, you know, and, and after F.M. Geller's interview, they interviewed me. Exactly, exactly, Ben. So that's how that kind of started. Precisely, Yes. Yeah, the, the Tilburg riff kills me. <laughs> Wake on Zay and Tilburg. And I love Yasser. And, and he's, you know, he's complimented me on the impression. That embarrassed me a little bit. But he's he's absolutely great. Yeah. Uh, him and Kasparov might be, might be two of the ones I worked on the most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Kasparov, I feel like that, that's got to be in your wheelhouse with your, your Russian background. Um, but yeah, great, greatly enjoy both of those. So <laughs> is that something you workshopped before I asked... Uh, I think it was uh, Levy. The same question: Did you did you practice offline before you did it online, or was it spontaneous? Yeah, with, with Kasparov, you know, it's, he's not. He doesn't have a conventional Russian accent. You know, kind of like Alexander Grishuk. You know, it's kind of simple. But you know, with Kasparov, you know, it's more yeah. like um, it's a cross between you know the British accent and you know the American, you know, the, the Russian accent. You know, there's uh, elements of both. You know, that, 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 that are prevalent. You know. Uh, but so you have to, it's, it's actually a very distinct thing. And I never thought I would be able to do uh, Kasparov's accent. Um, so it's definitely, I definitely practice it in, you know, in the shower. Sometimes I'll absentmindedly, you know, start 
and it's a, you know, I make myself laugh that way. <laughs> okay. If you, if you had any suspicions that I wasn't a lunatic, well, <laughs> I've, I've, I've removed all doubt. Um, so yeah, I definitely practice them and I, and I enjoy doing it. And I think one, one thing I've been, you know, everybody knows that I, I hold these players in the highest regard and, you know, it's all in good fun and they themselves, you know, join in and I encourage people to impersonate me and, you know, um, I would love to see it, you know, it's an open challenge to anybody, um, especially if they want to get back at me. So by all means, I'd, I'd love to see, yeah. you know, to, to see, to see them take some revenge. <laughs> yeah. I mean, speaking of being terrified in the elevator, when you see Kasparov, I wouldn't be scared to imitate Yasser. He has that sort of, um, you know, he seems very down to earth and, and friendly and takes things in, in good fun, but Kasparov, I would be scared of being on the wrong side. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But you know, one one quick thing I'll say is when I when I try to master, you know, or at least get better at an impersonation, I'll, it usually starts with one word that they pronounce in a particularly distinct way. Like with Kasparov, it was two things. So it was the way he says Karpov, it's a Korpov, Korpov, mm-hmm. Korpov. And I was like, Korpov, Korpov. You know, it was playing Korpov. And, and then it's easier to get the other words than that. And the other thing was, you know, like, he, yeah, you know, yeah, that's you know, good. You know, you know, and then mess away, you know. So it's easier then to to get, yeah. You know, now I feel like I can't stop speaking like Sparrow. It's easier <laughs> to get the other, you know, the other sentences. And so that's kind of a little tip if anyone's interested, I think. And not that I'm a ventriloquist, but if anyone's right. well, interested in trying to get those impersonations down, that's how I start. Cool. Well, we're almost done. So if you just want to finish in the Kasparov voice, that's, that's okay. With me. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay with me. Um, so I did want to ask you about moving to Charlotte. Did, did Peter mm-hmm. Giannatos of the Charlotte chess club, did he recruit you or was that your own decision or how did that come about? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. So, you know, Peter and I have been friends um, for, for a long time, for many years. And, you know, I've always thought that what he's doing, he founded the, the Charlotte chess center, which is doing amazing things uh, for chess, not only in Charlotte, but across Across the country and the world, um, and and you know even in the COVID age, they organize uh, cutting edge chess camps with people like Topalov and bring unprecedented opportunities to basically the entire range of, of young chess players. So you know Peter and I have been friends, um, and it, you know there was a standing offer that he made uh, for me to be a, a grandmaster in residence in Charlotte because Charlotte didn't have a GM, and. This was particularly to work with some of the talented young players in Charlotte, of which there are quite a few. Um, and of course, at that time, I was still in Stanford. So originally, I was supposed to do a, a master's, but you know, I had a bit of a change of heart, and I figured, you know, I've got a lot of friends in Charlotte, you know, Peter among them, and I just felt like this is this is what my soul wanted to do, um, and I'm just uh, honored to be a part of of what Peter has created, and you know, the city of Charlotte is just a, a booming chess city now. And uh, I think that really this, of course the COVID has, has introduced an entirely new wrinkle to this, but, you know, assuming that everything is, is in place when all of this blows over. Um, I think that really the sky's the limit and I'd love to be a part of developing maybe Charlotte's first uh, Charlotte, first Charlotte born young master. And perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll cultivate uh, some grandmasters eventually uh, as well. So I'm, I'm really uh, hopeful and I, I'm definitely indebted to Peter and I encourage, uh, you know, everybody who visits Charlotte or stops by Charlotte to stop by the chess center. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of good stuff that's going on here. That's cool. Yeah. They're doing absolutely amazing work. In fact, I was, when I was checking out the, there's tournaments going on now somehow, is that there right? Is, there yeah. is a tournament going on right now. Yep. And a norm tournament. Uh, I am in GM norm tournament. And of course, uh, very stringent measures have, have, um, I've been taken and Peter, I know works very hard to, to make sure of that. 
but I think it's uh, it's great to, to finally give some players an opportunity to play. Of course, everybody's so hungry uh, to play, especially young players for whom this is like the golden time uh, where they really need to play. So uh, I think it's great. And yeah, there's a tournament going on it's six minutes away from me. There are chess games being played right now, which is awesome. Yeah. And lifestyle wise, you enjoying Charlotte? V- very much so. I mean, of course, it's just a tad more affordable in the Bay Area. Just, just a no, bit. So yeah. Just a little bit. <laughs> Although it's cratering now, at least San Fran is. So. Yeah, it is. But still, it's it's incomparable. And I, I, I love the city. It's, you know, it's um, it's it, it's it has so many things, so many things to do, you know, diverse. And um, it's, you know, it's close to Atlanta. It's it's uh, not far from New York. So I'm really enjoying my time in Charlotte. You know, the weather takes some getting used to being from the Bay Area and being very spoiled in that way. But it's definitely a place that I'm that I'm staying in for for the foreseeable future, and uh, I'm really really enjoying my time here. Cool, glad glad to hear it. Um, I had one more mm-hmm. related question, but it's it's escaping it's escaping me. So if I don't think of it in ten seconds, <laughs> I'm going to let you go. <laughs> it's all good. Um, was it about Charlotte? Oh no, no. It was what? What was your master's going to be in? It was going to be in history, um, just like my undergrad degree. Okay. Um, and it was not a, not a lighthearted decision because I, like I said, I love history and I love the humanities and, and writing. But I felt like this was, you know, the opportunity train only comes around a few times, and I decided to jump on it. Yeah. Well, it seems like it was the right decision. I mean, you you know you're. You're very talented across the board, Danya. It's it's something to behold. Like uh, between the announcing and the Twitch presenting and the impressions and the actual chess, um, it's, it's just fun to watch. Well, I appreciate it, Ben, and and uh, this has been a real pleasure. Like I said, I I'm a big fan of uh, of your podcast. I think you're doing a great thing. Um, just having so many different players and chess personalities are on, and uh, I know for a fact that a lot of my title friends also are, are fans of your show. So, uh, you know, thanks for doing what, what you're doing. You're, you're doing a big part. Awesome. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. All right. So people know your Twitch channel, your YouTube channel. Every once in a while, you pop in on Twitter. And anywhere else uh, people should be, um, I mean, obviously, your events on chess.com. Uh, what's, what's the single best, best way to reach you, Danya? Uh, single best way to reach me is probably through my website, uh, danielnerdiskychess.com. There's a contact form. Believe it or not, it does go into my email address. Now, I will say that my email has been completely flooded since PogChamps with coaching requests. And, you know, there are some emails I haven't been able to get back to yet, but I do promise that I will get back to every single person. It just takes me some time. And I'm somebody who I like to take my time and, and write thoughtful responses rather than, you know, just brag about the speed of response. So, you're welcome to reach out to me through um, through my website. Uh, I'm also I also can be found on Facebook, uh, and uh, anybody can feel free to send me a message there. Um, and I generally respond to that quite fast. Uh, so I cannot promise to you know I'm very very booked when it comes to teaching, but I'm usually more than happy to help players out in any way that I can and answer questions and share stories. So I very much look forward to hearing from uh, from the, the viewers and the listeners of the podcast. Awesome. Good stuff, man. We'll keep up the good work, Tanya. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ben. This has been great. Special thanks, as always, to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess. 
positive reviews on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, glowing comments on YouTube help people discover the show, as does telling a friend or sharing it on social media. Speaking of which, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at BennyFischel1 or join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview. Sometimes the guests even weigh into these discussions. The Perpetual Chess Instagram page is back in action, so lots of ways to stay engaged, as they say. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those who provide financial support to the show, especially right now with all this COVID craziness going on in the world. Most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page. I also just put up a little donate directly link on the Perpetual Chess webpage where it says donate. But again, if you're not in a position to donate, I'm happy to have people listening and just enjoying the show. So without further ado, I'd like to give thanks to the people who helped make Perpetual Chess possible. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Alhaji, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, the Chess Central's Chess Blog, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen. Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harst, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Lila engine analysis, Michael Can, FM Michael Oblin, Mike Zelazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, Peter Zodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Stephen Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Beam, and I also would like to thank the following. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, FM Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anita Deer, Barry Hessian, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskachek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am Elect, Donnie, Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Latart Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schu, Harish Srinivasan, Jacob Kovach, Jack Perry, James Aspinwall, James Bonastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jadeep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Hoyland, Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, JJ Snod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM, Josh Friedel, I.M. Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I.M. Kosciukowiczki, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Reifworth, Laura Boyowski, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passy, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Araspide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Mulajanov, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, 
Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbeck, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, The Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM Tatiev Abrahamian, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Kolmanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will catch you all next week. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.